Good morning, beloved. It is good to gather together with you. Uh, if you will, turn in your copy of Scripture to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we will be working through this text that Kristen has paraphrased for us beautifully. Um, so as you're going there, uh, you were asked who your favorite video game character is today. I know some of you don't play video games, but I think all of us know a video game at least. Um, maybe in your childhood you played some, or you're around friends who had some, or maybe that's just your ongoing reality that you love video games. Um, but when, when you hear of video games, I think that there is a kind of iconic household name that all of us know of, and that is Mario. Uh, Mario is just so well known around the world, really, as this iconic game of, or yeah, it's a bunch of games, a lot of games actually, but this particular character in the video game, Mario. Um, so I wanted to share some just interesting things that I learned about Mario this week, because um, you know that's how my mind works. Um, but first, uh, Mario appeared in 1981. He was not actually, his first appearance was not in Mario or Super Mario Brothers or anything like that. It was actually in Donkey Kong. Um, Mario showed up. He was not known as Mario. He was known as Jumpman. And in Donkey Kong, the game, he was trying to save a princess from a barrel-throwing monkey, because that's a good time. Um, Mario was the name of the landlord who burst into the Nintendo, Nintendo America warehouse, and he, he was the landlord. He burst into this room, made a huge impression on them, so much so that they named this character Mario because of the fiery personality of this landlord who burst into the room and demanded late payment. Um, so... There you go, that's how we got the name Mario. Uh, Mario's arch enemy, uh, Bowser, was actually going to be an ox. But the co-developer, every time he saw the artwork, he was like, it doesn't really look like an ox, it looks more like a turtle. And so they just kind of shifted and said, it'll be a turtle. And thus Bowser was born. Uh, another fun thing, this, this is the most prolific video game character of history. This is the longest running video game character of history, and this is the best selling video game series in history. All of that, this, this guy, Mario, like what a guy. Um, but if you don't know what Mario is really all about, it kind of really finds its bearing in this central story, that Mario is on this grand adventure that is a rescue mission, and he is trying to rescue an enslaved princess. That's what all of Mario is based on, this grand epic adventure of this guy who's a plumber, weirdly, and he's trying to go capture or really free a captured princess. That this princess has been bound against her will and Mario has set out to free her, Princess Peach, to be freed. So Galatians chapter five, verse one. For freedom, Christ set us free. Did you hear that? For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Why? Why did Christ set you free? For freedom. He set you free for freedom. He set you free for freedom. And like Princess Peach, can you imagine if Mario, this plumber, suddenly goes on this epic adventure and he's fighting fire-breathing dragons like there's flaming fireballs coming at him. There's water full of these things that'll jump up and snap at him. There are plants that come out and bite at him. There are mushrooms that can kill him that are walking around. Like all these different things. There's little turtles and you think they're so cute and then they kill him. Like there's so many things that Mario is up against and he overcomes every bit of it in love for Princess Peach, and he sets her free. Like, this beautiful adventure comes to this culmination where Mario has set Princess Peach free. Princess Peach is like, thank you so much, Mario, I love you. And then as soon as they start to walk off, Princess Peach is like, see ya. And she turns around and she walks right back into Bowser's castle and locks herself up. 
what? What is that? Could you imagine the absurdity of that? For freedom, Christ sets us free. For freedom. You have been set free for freedom. And then he says, stand firm then. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Because how absurd is it that you would be set free when you could do nothing to free yourself, but a hero comes in and sets you free and you decide, you know, I'm actually going to go back into that enslavement. No, he says, stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the tension here. He's saying, past tense, for freedom Christ set us free. It has been done. It is historic. We look back on this. It is a fact. It is a done deal that Christ has set us free. It is done. And yet, there's this ongoing tension because there's a danger of us losing that freedom. You have been freed. And yet, there's this tendency in us to think, what do I kind of want to go back into that? I slip back into that. Or maybe I don't want to slip back into that, but I keep finding myself slipping back into that. He's saying, no, stand firm. Stand firm means that there's a force that's going to come against you. If he's saying stand firm, like, you know, you played a sport or maybe you go to the beach where you live in Florida, you've been to the beach and the waves are coming, the waves crash onto the shore. And so if you're standing there and you're all loosey-goosey, what happens when the wave hits you? Like, it's not good. You have to know that there's a force coming against you and so you've got to stand firm. You kind of brace yourself. Get ready to lean against that force. And he's saying, look, you have been set free, but there's a force coming that is going to try to push you back into that. And you've got to stand firm. You have to be ready to push against that tide as it comes towards you. So be ready and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. You were once a slave and you've been set free. Why would you make yourself a slave again? Princess Peach, don't be dumb. (laughs) Stay out of Bowser's castle. Mario set you free. And he continues in verse two. He says, take note. Exclamation point. I didn't read that correctly. Take note. (laughs) Take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Our circumcision, we won't get into the details again, but I think we all collectively know, but it's this outward sign of a covenant that God gave to Abraham and his descendants, that this will be a sign for you to mark you as one of my people, that this actually makes you into, uh, it's, it's this idea of removing something that can be filthy. And so you are now clean. I've taken what is dirty and removed it. And so it's actually supposed to parallel to what we know is a circumcision of the heart. And so this outward sign became this just religious legalistic obligation. This is how we show that we're the people of God. And so in Galatia, you have these churches where they believe the gospel that they've received from Paul. Like, by grace through faith, that is your salvation. That you believe that historically Jesus has died to set you free. Your salvation is in him. His righteousness has been given to you in grace. You live out of the favor of God, not for the favor of God. This is your freedom. You have been set free. You could not keep the law. In fact, the law functioned to show you that you could not keep the law. And so you need salvation outside of yourself. You need someone else to make you righteous. And Christ is the one who does that. And yet, in Galatia, you have these people creeping in. They're trying to pull you back into Bowser's castle, Princess Peach. They're trying to pull you back into enslavement. They're saying, look, that's great. Believe the gospel. But if, like, remember, historically, we've been the people of God for a long time. 
And so if you want to be part of the people of God, you need to know some things. One, like, you need to be circumcised. These signs of being the people of God. You need to observe the Sabbath every, every week. You need to engage in these feasts and these festivals, all these things that outwardly are signposts of being an ethnic Jew. If you want to be part of the people of God, you need to do this like us. All of these things find their roots in the law. And Paul's saying, you've missed the heart of the law. It's not so that you would be entrapped and enslaved to these things that really were meant to show you that you could not do it. No, you are free. Don't submit again to that. If you're looking to that in today's vernacular, because I don't think many of us are running to the law like, oh, I need to eat kosher and do all these things. But we still have the same wrestle. That in some way we think, I must perform. I need to be good enough. I need to measure up. Somehow I can merit God's favor. When we get God's favor by grace, meaning you don't deserve it, but he has done this in history. He has proven he loves us in spite of us. His love is not conditioned based on how I perform. It's, it's there fully. He loves me literally to death. This is our freedom. And Paul's saying, don't go back to that. If you turn from Christ, you have actually turned from salvation. If you turn from Christ, you've turned from salvation. If you turn to the law, look, remember, there is no salvation in the law. There's only condemnation in the law. So if you think you're gonna perform well enough, if you turn to the law for how you're going to be in this right standing relationship with God, also known as righteousness, if you're gonna find righteousness from the law, then realize all it's gonna do for you is show you how condemned you are. You don't go to the law for righteousness. You go to the law and you find condemnation. But if you look to Christ, you receive his righteousness and then you relate to the law rightly and see that this is an expression of God's holiness. And now, yes, I delight in your law. And I see this is what it actually looks like to navigate this life that's broken. But it's not, it's not gonna merit me salvation. I'm actually free from all of this. And so I can just live out of love and delight of God. If you look to the law, on any level for righteousness, you're not looking to Christ anymore for righteousness. Paul wants that to be emphatically clear. And he goes on in verse five, he says, for we eagerly await through the spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. Did you hear that? So if you go to the law, there's no hope there. There's no hope there. It will kill all hope if you run to the law for righteousness. He says, this is what we do. We eagerly await through the Spirit. <laughs> like even when he says, we're doing something, and yet he can't, he can't decouple that from what's well, actually the Spirit. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. Even our hoping, any active part on us, it's actually only empowered by God. It is through faith. It's nothing that we do, but through faith, this hope of righteousness to come. And this is hope, like the English language kind of loses some of this, um, which is tragic, but, but I think we can track with this. This is not hope, and this is like, oh, I hope it rains because my grass is really dying right now and I'm too cheap to water it. Like, no, that's, that's a hope that's like, okay, yeah, I get it, that's hope, but that's not the hope he's talking about there because that's a really unstable hope, Right? Like, I don't know if Kevin's looked at the weather lately. This is not gonna go well for him. But this is a different kind of hope. This is a hope like Hebrews 11.1 1 says. This is what it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. There's a certainty to this. Hope is an assurance. It's a certainty that we can rely on. We can rely on even if what is unseen 
is calling us away or forward. We press on in hope that it's, it's a confidence that we have. And so we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. But here's the thing. As a Christian, we look back into the past and we see the proof of God, that God's love for us was made manifest or revealed in this way that God sent forth his only son that we would have eternal life. That's 1 John 4, 9. So this is our salvation. We look back in the past and we see proof that God really loves us. He really does delight in us. He is gracious towards us, not because we deserve that, but because he loves us and he has made us delightful. And now we live out of that, but we're looking in the past to see this is a certainty. It has happened. Christ has died. He took our sin, our shame, our punishment on the cross. He bore the very wrath of God so that we would not have to face that. All of my sin and shame has gone. It was nailed to a cross. The record of debt that stood against me has been taken away, having been nailed to the cross. And now we live today in light of that day, and then we look forward to the day that is to come. And all of that informs today because the day that we look forward to, the day that is to come, is that we who are still stumbling saints, we're still falling in sin, we're still knowing every day how broken we are, we stumble forward, walking in light, stumbling sometimes in darkness, but as children of the light, we walk forward in light because that day, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. That is the promise of scripture that God started this when we could do nothing. We were dead and he quickened us to life. He secured our salvation on the cross and then he rose again victorious over death saying, I'm just the first fruit. The rest of you are gonna follow. So as he comes out of the tomb, it's like him saying, come on boys and girls, let's go. And we're just waiting for the day when he's gonna call us all back and then everything that he began, he will complete. And that day, like we sang that song it as well, Lord, haste the day. What is that day? It's the, the day of the Lord that the scriptures are talking about all the time. And usually it's a terrifying experience that the rocks are shaking and people will cry out wishing the rocks would fall on them and cover them because they're so terrified of what it is going to be like for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to come down with a sword out of his mouth and just, yeah, you guys have nothing. It will be terrifying for the world. But for us, we say, oh, haste the day. Or as the scriptures conclude, come, Lord Jesus, come. This is my hope that you come. You finish this. It was you all along holding me. And so we wait with a confidence, a certainty. And think about the real freedom that comes with that certainty. The confidence that you can have brings real freedom to us in today when we can look back and see the cross and we can look forward with full assurance of what is to come that I, I did not gain this right standing with God by anything that I have done. And so that means on that day, it will still not be anything that I have done. It will be what he has done. That my salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it at his own cost. And so if I can have the confidence of he saved me when I did not deserve it, and he is saving me when I don't deserve it, and he will save me when I don't deserve it, my salvation is entirely by grace through faith. And so I can wait eagerly with hope, with confidence, with certainty. Do you realize every other ideology in the world, every other ideology says, you have to do something. You need to make this right. You need to eliminate desire. You need to be a better person. You need to follow these rules. You need to do whatever it is. You need to 
change your way of thinking, but it's all saying you must do something. And do you know what kind of enslavement that is? Yes, you do. Because we all live it. We all slip back into it sometimes. That if you don't really know where it's going to land in the end, then how can you ever be free today? But if you know with certainty that just like I didn't deserve this in the past, but he has marked me with love and he died for me and he died and he made a promise that he is going to carry me through. He's going to finish this. So now I can live free. So I don't have to wait every day like, oh, am I a child of God? Am I, have I slipped out? Like those scales. Like in Islam, Allah will have these weights so it goes in the end and will weigh what you have done. And you want, the, you want the scale to tip in your favor that you've done enough good. What bondage. And, and we slip into thinking like that. That I must perform in some way. And so I start to slip into thinking like my relationship with God, like, oh, like, how am I doing? How am I doing? <laughs> it's like, no, I love you. You never deserve to be here but I love you and I've got you here and I'm going to keep you here. And so with confidence, looking forward, I say, no, I, I know the end. And so I can live today free and his freedom. And verse six, it continues. It says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Well, that's weird. <laughs> for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. Circumcision would be a reference to religious performance. That's why circumcision came about in the first place. This is going to be a mark to identify you. You do this in obedience. You'll be my people to mark you, to set you apart. And so this is a religious performance. It's an obligation. And so he's saying not just circumcision, but you put in that anything you do that you think merits the favor of God. Anything you do to perform, to be good enough or anything like that, any kind of legalistic ideology or activity, it falls in this category of circumcision. You say, no, <laughs> it doesn't matter for anything. You can't, trying to be good, trying to be good, like, no, it's, it's not going to work. So circumcision or uncircumcision, neither of them, neither of them matter. Neither of them matter uncircumcision would be the opposite of the, like, the good people. You have the bad people, like the pagan people, the idolatrous people, or even the antinomian people, the people who say like, no law at all, like it's totally gone, don't need it at all, and so I just do what I want to. And, and so ah, I just sin more and more and more and more. Like many of you probably remember, I definitely had those days in my life. I was wrestling through like, what does grace mean? Does grace mean like, oh, like I can just do what I want and like none of it matters. It's like, no. So either way, circumcision, religious performance, the really good or uncircumcision, the, the idolatrous, the pagan, the, just, the people who don't care at all about God's holiness and how they're called to holiness, it's like none of that matters. In other words, it's not your successes and it's not your failures that count for our standing with God. Do you remember the show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Apparently it's back. I didn't know that. So I have no idea what it's like anymore. But whose line it is anyway, I remember uh, as, I think, a teenager. Um, and so I have no idea who the characters are anymore, but it was like this all-star lineup and they'd have somebody rotating through, but it was this improv comedy show. And so, uh, but the tagline of it, as they're doing all these just hilarious things, it's just like keeps you laughing the whole show. 
But the tagline in this show is, the show where everything's made up and the points don't matter. And over and over throughout the show, Drew Carey would host it, and is, hey, who's lying? And like, he would just award like random numbers, like one million points to you, and negative five million points to you, like, and just all over the place. But he would just keep repeating that line. Hey, this is a show where everything's made up and the points don't really matter. And everybody just kind of laugh and keep going. But it like carried the spirit of the show. They're like, as somebody, like I told you, my son gets like really into his team and stuff. I'm the same way. And so if I watch this show and like my guy that I think is the funniest is not as funny that week, then I'm just like, nah. But every time he would make that statement, it's the show where everything's made up and the points don't really matter. And it's like, oh, okay, good. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's all right. And so it's, it freed me. It would free you to enjoy it and just feel the fun of the moments. And that's what he's saying here. If you realize what you do does not matter. It's what he has done. Will you just trust in what he has done and what he will do? And then you live in freedom. He's the one, like Princess Peach, you can't do anything to get out of the castle. But Mario, he can get you out. Like you were dead in sin. Do you know what dead men can do to free themselves? Nothing. They're just dead. That is how scripture speaks to us in our lost state, in our sin, that we are dead. We are dead and the enemy of God that we hated God. And yet when we were dead, when we are sinners, dead in our sin, God in love for us brought us to life. It is entirely what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do. And so our successes, circumcision or uncircumcision, they don't matter. Our successes, our failures, they don't matter in a sense. If you are looking to those for your salvation, you are lost. That is not it. What matters is what he has done. Look to him and see, like, it's free. You're free. But that does not mean that we are free to indulge in sin or have no care for doing good. Like, okay, wait, what are you saying? Like, it doesn't matter and it does matter? Yes, you have to see, like, there's a distinction here. That your salvation, your right standing with God is not based on what you have done, can do now, or will do. It's entirely what God has done. But in response to that, remember, we're not living for the favor of God. We're living out of the favor of God. Now, in freedom, it matters what you do. You're free now to live to the glory of God. You're free now to live in love because why? Because what did he say at the second half of that? What matters is faith working through love. Your performance doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. Okay, it does matter. Why? Because faith is animated into love. When you believe what God has done for you, that is going to bring about a response. This faith in us is going to result in love. And love results in obedience. Love brings about action. It's the thing like, when you look at this, love is a person. Jesus came to rescue us in love. He loves us. He has shown us that love from him. The love of Christ, the love from him to us is going to birth love for him. That as he has loved us, now we love him. And so if he loves us this much, like it's incalculable how much he loves us, then now I grow in love for him. And as I love him, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's not like a legalistic thing to fall into this like enslavement, but it's actually freedom. Like you do love me. 
And now freely, I want to love you and I want to express that love to the whole world. I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to know how much he loves you. I want you and everyone, like we just live this life of overflowing love that's vertical to us, going horizontal to others. This is who I am. I'm now free. And in this freedom, I'm so loved that I cannot help but just in this faith, overflowing, animating love, I need to live for his glory. Because I'm free, I want to live for him. Like Jesus, his love for us resulted in him taking action, working. He came and he fully kept the law like we never could. And then he died, the death that you and I deserve. What inspired him to do that? What incited him to do that? What is it that drove him to die for us? Love. And now in the same way, love will drive us to live for him and maybe even to die for him. Do you know the story of Perpetua? Perpetua of Carthage is a famous Christian martyr, so spoiler alert, she dies. Uh, she was one of six Christians in prison in Carthage in 203 AD that would be killed for her faith in the arena with gladiators, wild beasts, and criminals. She was actually a convert who was waiting and being catechized, awaiting her baptism. And so the teacher, who was actually not originally imprisoned with them, came willingly and offered himself to be with these individuals who had become Christians and were awaiting their baptism, and he is catechizing them, teaching them about the faith. And now they're imprisoned, and on the birthday of someone prominent in the Roman Empire, um, they're going to have this huge celebration where kind of the norm, there's a very class-based system that the wealthy, the elites, would enjoy watching those below them suffer and ultimately die as gladiators would kill each other and others, um, slaves, prisoners, criminals, all these, all these people would be set free in an arena with lions and bears and all kinds of things to tear them apart or fight each other to the death and just all for the entertainment of the elite. And Perpetua is one of them. The night prior to the event, the prisoners are, according to custom, given their last meal. It was called the Libira. Um, but this group of Christians chose to make it an agape feast, um, which was what the church largely, as in the early years of the church, there was house churches predominantly. And so they would meet in homes of prominent people who had big enough homes to house quite a few people. They'd come together and they would share a meal where those who could afford it would literally buy food for those who could not afford it. And they would come together and this was their communion. This was the, the, the coming together for the Lord's Supper that they would celebrate this agape feast. And they would call each other brother and sister and talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ and all these things that are from our scriptures and the outside world, not understanding, would think like, okay, these are a bunch of incestuous cannibals. They're crazy. And so these prisoners, while everyone around can watch them, like, this is your final meal. Better enjoy it. And they choose to make it an agape feast, to make it a worship gathering, where they praise their Lord and thank him for his provision. And they encourage each other in the gospel and remind each other to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. The waves are coming. There's going to be a force that's coming against us. Let's face it with joy and hope full of faith. When they're um, brought in Perpetua and Felicitas, 
They're two girls. They're brought in together, and a mad heifer is set loose on them. Knocks out Perpetua, and as she regains consciousness, she sees Felicitas is on the ground, and she walks over and helps her up, which is incredible, because Perpetua is born into a prosperous family. And so in the social hierarchy, she's up here, and Felicitas is a slave. She's down here. You don't touch each other. And yet Perpetua comes over and helps pick her sister up as they stand together side by side as this beautiful display of the gospel. That we're in the same family here, the same footing at the foot of the cross. And I love you to the end. Like Jesus loved me to the end. They come together when it comes time to die after they've been mauled by beasts. They come together in the center of the arena and it's time to die by the sword of the gladiators. You know, the Christians come together and they greet each other one last time with the kiss of peace. Because as Peter said, greet each other with a holy kiss. As this sign to all the onlookers that we love each other. We're part of a different kind of community. We're even in death. We'll greet each other with a kiss of peace. Peace? <laughs> Do you see what's going around? As the gladiators are surrounding us with swords, brother, sister, they embrace and they kiss just like they would as it was instilled in them that we do this every week. We come together and we worship and we greet each other with a holy kiss. Perpetua has a gladiator who's new to the job and he's shaking with inexperience and she actually takes her own hand and grabs his blade and guides it to her own throat because he is so inexperienced and so unsettled by the way that these people are acting that he doesn't know what to do. And I want you to consider this. In light of that story, of these Christians being killed for their faith, as they're joyfully coming here, and I'm not harping on you, but if we look collectively at the church and you think there are times when our brothers and sisters in the faith would guide a sword to their own throat with a smile and say, enjoy. Enjoy of Christ. To die, ah, oh, it's gain. And we live in a day when so many churches are begging you to volunteer for just an hour a week, I'll give you a cool shirt. We'll make it comfortable. We'll hype it up. What has happened? Your Lord has commanded you to lay down your life every day, to pick up your cross, to serve each other, to outdo one another in showing honor. And there are brothers and sisters who would guide a blade to their own neck. This is freedom. This is real freedom. When they came into the arena, they're drawn together um, and, and they're supposed to don the typical costumes um, of that time. And those costumes would be the costumes of the priests and the priestesses of these different pagan gods that the Roman Empire would celebrate. Because ultimately their offense was that they only would serve Jesus, the only true God. Like, well, you could have Jesus if you would ask to hold to all these other gods, but because you'll only have that one, like, you gotta die for it. And so they're told you're gonna put on these robes to look like, to play the part of the priests and priestesses of these other gods so that this is actually worship to these false gods. And you know what uh, Perpetua says? Refusing. They will not take the costume. She says, now we came here of our own will. Now we came here of our own will so our freedom might not be constrained. Could you imagine? <laughs> Knowing all that's about to take place and they're like, well, we want you to put on these pagan costumes 
as an act of worship. Like, basically, like, denounce your faith. You need to do this. And she's like, we came here of our own will so that our freedom would not be constrained. Like, you're imprisoned. You're coming here for your execution. Like, no, 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 I'm free. I'm free, and you won't take that freedom from me. I'll, I'll guide the blade to my own throat, but I will not put that on. This is freedom. How can she do this? How can she hold to this freedom in these moments? Knowing she's about to be murdered for her faith to entertain a bunch of people who are so unnerved by this whole spectacle, it became an outrage. This is not how this thing's supposed to go down. What are these people in here doing? How can she do that? That's the bottom line. Freedom is experienced in remembering who set you free. You've got to remember who set you free, and then you'll be free. If you can remember who set you free, you will experience freedom because there are essentially two avenues here for righteousness. You can go the avenue of law, which is the do and obey, perform, earn your righteousness. And who is in view with that avenue? Self. If it's about my performance, my focus is on me. But if I choose to go the other avenue, the only actual avenue there really is, because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is just Jesus. It is just grace. It is faith. You freely receive righteousness that is imputed to us from Christ. Who's in view with this one? God. It's just him. So again, if I want to experience freedom, I must know that freedom is experienced when I remember who set me free. He must be in view. In all things, in every moment, every effort, everything we do, see Jesus, see him, the one, the rescuer. He is so much better than Mario. Can you imagine? This is Jesus. Jesus is the one who emptied himself and took on the form of humanity. The creator coming down, entering into his own creation. The mess that we had made. Him humbling himself, condescending, coming to us, his own creation. Coming into his creatures and becoming like us humbling himself to that point, knowing fully the weight of temptation and yet never succumbing. Now, C.S. Lewis used to write about how he's the only one who really knows what it truly is to be human because we encounter temptation and every one of us succumbs to temptation and yet Jesus never did. And so that's like when the wind is blowing and the man is walking, the man who lies down because he can't take the wind anymore, he doesn't know what the full force of the wind is like. He just knows what it was like when he took a seat. I said, I can't do it anymore. Jesus, having never failed, having never fallen into sin, he knows the full weight of what it is to be human, more than we do. He knows us. He is here. He suffered rejection. His own creatures kill the creator. He's rejected. He's betrayed. He's tortured. He has accusations trumped up against him. He's crucified on a cross, and the very wrath of God that is justly due on me and on you is absorbed in the Son of God so that we would not have to face that. He has freed us. He took all of our sin and all of our shame on himself. This is a glorious rescue. Like there is no rescue like this. Mario has nothing on Jesus. So again, you go back to the beginning. For freedom, Christ set you free. So stand firm. Don't walk back into the castle and put the chains on. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. It's not about your performance. Just keep him in view. See the one who has set you free and you will experience real freedom. This day and every day, he is at the center. So I can just imagine Mario, like if Princess Peach walked back in there, put on the chains, shackled up, 
Bowser's laughing, and Mario would be like, but the fireballs, but the squid thing jumping out, but the, the mushrooms, but, the, but everything, everything I suffered for you, why would you do this? And we could think to Jesus and think like, but the cross, but the rejection, but the humiliation, but all this. And like, you should remember those things. Remember what our Savior endured for us. But you know what scripture emphatically makes clear that we're to think of in every moment of seeing those things the way that our Savior suffered? This is all just proof of his love. So I could just imagine like as we put the shackles back on, I just imagine Jesus sitting there calmly saying with dear love in his voice, but I love you. And you never earned my love. I love you. Why would you do that? Just remember that I love you. You're free. So remember, I love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is true, that you love us in that way, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, this great, grand, epic adventure of rescue. So God, Spirit, help us to never fall back into this bondage. This, the weight of thinking that we somehow can earn your favor and forget that you gave it freely so we can live out of that because what matters is faith working through love. Let us be a people known for that, for love, faith working through love, for an overflow of love for you and love for each other. God, make us free people like Perpetua that we could even face death and not be afraid and we could face it with joy we're actually just getting closer to you. And let the world watch in wonder. And let them not see us, who can do nothing to save ourselves, but see you, the greatest hero ever. You are salvation, Messiah, Jesus, you are beautiful. We thank you and love you. And I pray all this in your name.